Now then, at 7.35, Vladimir Putin will lead Russia for another six years, at least, after securing 76.6% of the votes in a presidential election held on Sunday. It was a much-expected outcome, but now the eyes are on what he'll do in 2024, when his fourth term ends. Let's welcome on the line Professor Orajan Reuter, Department of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And straight away, I mean, we're kind of drawn to this comparison with China's Xi Jinping, who has effectively taken office now for life. Is it possible Vladimir Putin will uh, emulate him or or aim to do the same? I suppose anything's possible. Um, And, you know, I hate to speculate too much, but, but, um, you know, Putin has to this point... uh, um, uh, tried to operate within the the limits of the Constitution. So, you know, in 2012, he stepped down uh, for four years um, because the Russian Constitution wouldn't allow him to serve more than two consecutive terms. And, you know, the Russian Constitution bars him from uh, running again. So if he wants to run again in 2024, he'll need to change the Constitution this time. And, and that could happen, but... Uh, uh, I think it's somewhat unlikely, and uh, not not least because um, if he does do that, I think that could create some backlash with Russia. Six years is a pretty hefty term, though, isn't it? You can do quite a lot in that time, um, and and perhaps do quite a lot uh, in conjunction with China's Xi Jinping, who I mentioned before. I mean, is it a natural comparison to make between the two of them that they present this alternative to? the U.S. and the EU and and some of the other countries of domination? Um, Yeah, I don't think it's necessary that... Well, well, it's not an ideological alternative to democracy or capitalism, right? I mean, obviously, they're both market economies for the most part, and, um, you know, obviously, there's oligarchic elements, and the state plays a much larger role in those economies than in the West, but on the economic front, they're, they're not a real... Um, you know, ideological alternative. And on the political front, they're not an ideological alternative either. They're the, you know, China and Russia, they don't, they don't export their model of, of autocracy explicitly. Um, uh, so I think it's... But, but, you know, at the same time, you know, um, uh, it, it has changed, you know, the... the, the um, uh, the development of, of countries becoming more democratic has slowed in recent years, and, and you know, Russia and China are playing a role in, in stopping that, from, keeping that from happening. Yeah, I mean, and certainly on key issues like Syria and on, on North Korea, for us closer to home, regardless of a domestic political system, we definitely see Russia having a counterbalancing effect, don't we? Yeah, sure. Um, although, I mean, I, I don't. That that's only, I think, tied to Russia's regime type in maybe a, a limited way. You know, even a democratic Russia. You know, I think, you know, Russia is an autocracy. But even if those elections had been free and fair on Sunday, I think it's highly likely Putin would have won. And I think even a democratic Russia would also be taking an antagonistic stance towards uh, the U.S. right now. Um, so, you know, yeah, again, you know, the regime type doesn't tell us much in this case, I don't think, about Russia's foreign policy. Right. We've heard a lot about Russia 
and um, Great Britain recently, haven't we? Um, in fact, um, that may have worked in Mr. Putin's favour lately. Uh, turnout's been higher than expected, according to his spokesperson, um, who said about maybe as high as 10% higher than expected. Um, and they said thanks to Great Britain, uh, these spy murder allegations raised by the UK. H- how have they really been received, do we think, on the ground there in Russia? Yeah, I think that might be an exaggeration by his spokesperson. Turnout was higher than, than expected. Um, uh, I'm not sure how much of that. It is really impossible to tell how much that's really due to to the rally around the flag effect that's been created by the recent row with, with Great Britain. I mean, generally speaking, you know, Putin's high, popu- astronomically high popularity numbers in the last few years are due to in large part, the conflict with the West and and this kind of siege mentality that's set in in the Russian populace. This idea that you know Russia's being encircled and it's being uh, it's being discriminated against, and that uh, you know Putin is standing up for Russia. So, in general, that has you know buoyed Putin support. The specific thing with with the UK, I'm skeptical that it had a big effect on the election. There is um, this ongoing investigation. Russia's not been particularly happy about being left out of that uh, from the UK's perspective, just expelling 23 diplomats a few days before this election. But what do you make of the whole nerve agent attack scandal? Uh, Is it clearly a a Russian-backed scheme in your mind, or at least can you say that you feel this Putin government is capable of that sort of thing? Certainly, capable. I think it's it's almost impossible to think that they that uh, either the Russian intelligence services or individuals or organizations with ties to the Russian intelligence services weren't behind it. Um, that nerve agent that was used, it's only produced in the Soviet Union um, and may have been continued to be produced in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We don't know, but it's not produced anywhere else in the world. So that leaves only two possibilities: either the Russian state directed the attack, or which is even the second option is even scarier, that they've lost control over some of this nerve, nerve agent. Um, I think actually the second one, you know, luckily, is probably unlikely. So it m- must be that some you know, uh, uh, state-backed element uh, was behind the attack. How can anyone, in terms of other nations, I mean, build a, a meaningful relationship with a country that is capable of carrying out that kind of attack and then d- denying it so... Um, defiantly. It's North Korea-esque when we make that comparison with uh, the VX nerve agent that was used in Malaysia. Right, yeah. Yeah, it is is unfortunate, and uh, it's making it... It's it's hard to fathom why they did this. Um, I mean, one possibility is that it wasn't an order handed down from above. This wasn't a strategic calculation. This is some element in security services that's gone rogue. We don't know, and it's really all, I mean, we can only speculate. Um, but it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to do this because there's the, the gain is pretty minimal. This this particular individual was, I mean, he, he couldn't have been all that threatening to uh, the, the Russian security services. I mean, his to the extent that he has state secrets, they're quite old by now. Um, and so it's not clear what the benefit was, whereas the costs are very clear. Um, so it is a puzzle as to whether the West can, you know, this whether they can or should cooperate with Russia. I mean, you know, 
yeah, this is a, a, a horrific act, but um, this type of thing happened during the Cold War when the stakes were much higher, and uh, you know the West was able to find areas of mutual cooperation with the Soviet Union on issues that were much, much bigger, you know, nuclear cooperation, things like that. And so I mm-hmm. think the path forward is simply to recognize Russia as a, uh, as a um, state with its own interests and find um, areas where there's possible win-win situations and possible areas of mutual benefit and, and work, work in that direction. Is this just the way, though, that the Kremlin operates or the way Vladimir Putin operates in the, in the respect that political opponents may be silenced? We've seen opposition leader Alexei Navalny out of the picture in the build-up to this election, an election which you say and which many say would have led anyway to a Putin victory. So it almost smacks mm-hmm. of paranoia to take all these extra steps that seem unnecessary. Mm. Well, um... Yes and no. So, well, I think, first of all, we should separate the current nerve agent attack from his efforts to uh, sideline other opponents, because the nerve agent attack, I don't think, was all that political. I think this was something to do with, you know, uh, score settling or conflict within the security services. So, now, um, you know, the, the fact that some of Putin's political enemies have ended up dead or that, that they've been sidelined. Well, this is part of, you know, I mean, Putin wants to not just win elections, but he wants to win them by large margins. He wants to demonstrate uh, his uh, um, invincibility and uh, uh, demonstrate his strength. And so, you know, one of the main ways that he's been able to do that is by ensuring that there aren't viable challengers during um, election campaigns. Um, so you have elections with multiple parties and multiple candidates on the ballot, but but none of them pose a serious threat to Putin because they've they've been mostly mar- the, the real uh, uh, the, the strong candidates have been marginalized in one way or the other. Yeah, um, yeah. But finally, I mean, if you listen to Putin speak, he he can be quite charming. He can put forward very reasoned arguments as to why he does what he does in the foreign policy arena. He portrays the United States. As, um, as, a, as a country that's an aggressor, he points to the missile defense systems dotted around the world, for example. Uh, how do you see that relationship developing in, in the coming years? Can you see Russia actually starting to push the U.S. militarily a bit more? Um, well, there's going to be, there are always going to be limits to, I hope at least, there's limits to the amount and type of conflict that the U.S. and the or the Russia and the West can engage in because they're both uh, the U.S. and Russia at least are nuclear superpowers and uh, you know uh, I think that obviously neither side wants to risk something like that and um, so in in some ways you know it's just like during the Cold War when you had this concept of mutually assured destruction which which uh, uh, many argue kept the peace for for 50 years during the Cold War. And, you know, a a similar type of uh, restraint-inducing dynamic is at play now. Mm. Um, So, you know, in some ways, I think that these these conflicts, these these verbal spats the U.S. and Russia get into... um, I think the, the the key players know that there's there's a limit to how far that 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 conflict is going to 
uh, progress. That being said, of course, the big danger is that there's some sort of uh, some sort of accident or some sort of miscalculation or some sort of miscommunication, and that's why having Russian and uh, and, and and Western forces operating in close proximity to each other in in Syria is so dangerous. Right. Well, thank you, Professor Ora John Reuter, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Great to have you with us on the line and sharing your expertise. Thank you very much.